Amen. Well, good morning, Creekside. Uh, go ahead, get your Bibles out, um, and we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians. Um, just a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, context. We are in our build series. We've been working through these kind of main rhythms of the faith, prayer, scripture, community. We're in the community section, and Ephesians chapter 4 is such a great passage um, in terms of uh, uh, community and the building of the body, how it all works together. That's where we're going to spend our time. Um, and so I think I have for you uh, the passage. Why don't we throw it up there? Um, I'm going to read through it, and then... We'll kind of get going from there and, and, and work through different parts. We're not going to go linearly through it this time, um, but I'll explain that in just a second. So let's read together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he has led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill things, fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, uh, which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, and I want to give you just a little bit of context of what he's saying, and I'll break this down um, for us. Um, and so Paul, obviously, he, he, when he's writing to these churches, he's writing to correct, um, to both remind and inspire, but also to correct situations that are going on. And in the early church, it is, there's this underlying problem, problem almost in all of the letters that are written, um, where there's the, the church is this radical time of change, right? Where, the, well, actually, the church is a new thing, relatively speaking, in the sense that you have these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, and them being together in the same church has been causing a lot of problems. And so, what Paul's doing in this in this book of Ephesus is he's or in the book he wrote to the Ephesians. Um, 
is he's reminding us again and again and again that there are not two churches, the church for the Jews and the church for the Gentiles, but there is one church, one faith, one baptism. Wherever you come from culturally, whatever you've experienced in the past, it does not define the culture or the church that you're a part of today, but we're all united under Jesus. That is Paul's constant going back. So here's what I want to say. I'm just going to break this down into some simple ideas. What is the problem specifically that Paul is trying to address in this passage. The problem, and I think it's the same problem that we have today, is that the people are seeing their differences as a threat and not a gift, okay? The people are seeing the differences they have between themselves, so Jews and Gentiles, apostles and prophets, right? They're seeing the differences that exist within the body of Christ as a threat and not necessarily as a gift. In fact, if you go down to verse 7, he reminds us, look, he's like, grace was given to each according to the measure of Christ's gift. This word gift is over and over and over in the book of Ephesians. First, in Ephesians 2, Paul is writing and reminding the people, look, like, your faith is a gift. Everything you have has been given to you by God. This is not an accident. So the differences that exist within the body of Christ, the differences that exist in this room, the difference between me and you and you and your spouse and you and your kids and you and the person you've never met before next to you, that difference is not an accident, it is not a threat, but it is actually a gift given by God, okay? This idea is not a new one. And yet, this seems to be a lesson very slowly learned, or I, you know, honestly, like I, in the culture we live in today, it seems like this fundamental truth is one that is so easily lost, right? That the differences that exist between you and I was not an accident, it is not a threat, but it is in fact a gift. The difference that exists between your Republican brothers and sisters and your Democratic brothers and sisters was not an accident. It's not because one side is totally deluded and has no idea. It was, you are different, and that different was, difference was created by God, and it is a gift. We've just, we're living through this COVID thing, and COVID, like, like we needed one more thing in the church to feel different about, right? Mask and not masking, vaccines and not vaccines, whatever it is, right? Those differences that exist in us, those propensities that cause us to think differently about the thing. They are not a threat. They are not an accident. They are a gift from God. It sounds simple. It's really hard, right? Even just within my own household, who I do not question my love for any of my children or my spouse, but even with that group of seven of us, I have to be reminded that the differences that exist in the house isn't just because I messed up parenting or this kid is too hard, but that this actually is, in fact, different children given different gifts. And that's not an accident. It's actually a gift from God. We see difference as a threat. And Paul is trying to get to that because it is the thing that tears the church apart whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's political stances, whether it's doctrinal stances, philosophical stances, anything. 
worship, your favorite kind of worship music, any of it. These differences are not an accident and they are not a threat. We have to keep saying that again and again. I think these, you know, when we see this problem rear its ugly head, there's usually two different things at play here. One is in our insecurity, when we see differences, it immediately causes some sort of comparison between us and somebody else. If this person is right or okay, then that means something about me if I see the world differently than them. This happens in our household constantly. We have different kids who have different sports that they love. And so, you know, we're in baseball season now. And if we're complimenting one kid who's playing baseball, there's always another kid reminding us how good they are at the other sport, right? Because one compliment, for some reason, causes this insecurity in the other kid to go, yeah, but, but what about me, right? And this exists within the church constantly. If we elevate one gift, then there's others saying, oh, that gift isn't very valuable, or we don't need that. There's this insecurity that is drawn by comparison that I don't think we have the power to really stop, but it's very, very dangerous. And this is what Paul's warning. It's a problem. Because we start to see what is valuable and good about our brothers and sisters as a threat. The other side of it is in arrogance, right? And I think we deal with this a lot. You'll see, you'll see the arrogance. If you don't know what arrogance looks like, um, just look at any kind of uh, network news, right? And you go to CNN, you go to Fox News, either of those will show you what it looks like to be so sure that your perspective is right, that everyone else is so dumb, Right? So sometimes our difference breeds this super insecurity, and other times all it does is make us tribe up with all the people who think like us, talk like us, and everyone else is stupid, okay? We see it with masking, we see it with vaccines, we see it with politics, we see it all the time. This is not a new problem. This is not something that's unique to the 21st century. It's not unique. It has been a problem since the beginning of time. But what we have to remind ourselves over and over, and what the Bible keeps trying to iterate is, actually, this isn't an accident. God actually made it this way. Our differences aren't bad. They are good for us. Uh, I just started a new job back in January at Cisco. And um, at Cisco, they have you go through this whole like uh, personality evaluation of who you are so that your manager and your coworkers know who you are. It's like, you know, how many of you have ever done Enneagram, the Enneagram test, or Myers-Briggs, or DISC assessment, or Strength Finders, or whatever. They, they have a new one that we're doing at Cisco, and I can tell you, I know, that it told me that I'm an influencer and that I'm creative. Okay, great. Now I know these things about myself, but they're not telling me this so that I know who I am. Why are they doing this? Because even in the corporate world, they recognize that my, by me inherently knowing who I am, I have to be careful because I will devalue other people who are not like who I am. All of the literature they gave us after we took this test is, now you need to know what your peers are and what their strengths are. Because even in the corporate world, they understand what has been broken since the beginning of time, and that is that difference if it's not pop properly digested, I would say through the Spirit of God, poses a threat. It makes us think either insecurely about ourselves or we just have to deal with it by thinking other people are stupid. And it's a huge threat 
to the main goal that God is trying to accomplish. That's what we have to see here, okay? What is God trying to accomplish? Well, I mean, we, he says it right here. He says it in uh, verse 11. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for, this for is where we're, the telos, like what we're trying to do for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of Jesus. What is God's main objective? That every human being who walks across this earth would know that he is in fact the God in heaven, that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, and that we are unified in that faith, that there's one baptism, one church, one faith that we, you know, profess. And here's the beautiful part of the story. In the end, that's already going to be all taken care of. In Revelation, we get a glimpse of Jesus in his rightful place, a very eclectic and unified body of Christ surrounding him, putting him in his place, people from all generations, all tongues, all tribes, all times, the objective that God is trying to accomplish is pretty simple. It's he wants to be seen for who he is, and he wants us all to be unanimous in our voice together, unified, working together to make much of him. It's what will in, be in the end, and it's what he's always working towards. But there's a threat, and that threat is in some way that we maybe don't need each other in that process. You know, I was talking with a doctor friend of mine this week, and he was saying, you know, one of the fascinating things about this season is that um, over this last year, um, there have been almost zero flu cases, like, like regular old flu right? Um, he said he would use, he used to, as a general practitioner, be writing prescriptions for flu medication two, three, four, five times a day in the flu season. And he said the last prescription he wrote for flu medication was back in December. He wrote one. He said the flu is virtually non-existent right now. They don't exactly know why it might just because of all the masking and all of the hand washing. There's lots of theories about why that would be. And so, let's just say it's the masking and the hand-washing and the isolating and all the things we have done to be alone. I can, tell, I can guarantee you a way that we would never get the flu. Just hold yourself up in your house. Don't ever see another human being. Don't ever open yourself up to, to what could come from the outside. But the problem is, if we do that, we have therefore let go of community. Like, by its very nature, you can't do it anymore. There is an inherent, I think, risk that exists with opening ourselves up to other people. Now, it may not always be the flu. Flu is a very physical, tangible one we can see. But come on. You open your heart up to another person in a small group or in a gospel community. You're opening yourself up vulnerably. It may not be a physical. Maybe it is physical, like the flu, but emotionally... You're opening yourself up for correction, for being let down, for by being hurt. 
right? It's easier in some ways to isolate, and yet what this passage is telling us over and over and over again is that if we isolate, we actually will never achieve what we were designed to achieve, that in unison, in this eclectic, diverse, crazy group of people, we will put Christ above all things. That's the goal, not you isolated on your own, realizing Jesus is awesome. That is not the fulfillment of what God is trying to accomplish here, right? So in doing that, in trying to accomplish this goal of bringing all things unified under Jesus, he has given us roles in that, which is what he's trying to explain. Now, sometimes when you read this, you can read it. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. There's two different kind of ways you could read that. You could read it as he's given um, specific individuals. Like you can think of um, the apostles, like the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter. He's given prophets like Isaiah. Um, and, and the main, I think the question here is, and I don't think it really matters for the application, but the question is, when you're reading this passage, is he referring to just specific people that were given, or is he re referring to types of people that were given, right? Like, there were apostolic people who came along. There were shepherding people who came along. There were evangelistic people who came along. There are prophetic people who've come along. Certainly throughout the Bible, we have prophetic people. Certainly throughout the Bible, we've had apostolic people. We've certainly had the apostles, right? One thing that I think kind of gives a clue to the fact that this is maybe broader than just thinking of individual people like Isaiah or like um, Paul is that in verse 7, he says, but, the, but grace was given to each one of us. And that grace he's talking about is the giftings that were given. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's not just talking about, oh, each one of us was given salvation. He's saying each one of us was given gifting according to his measure, the way that he's going to do it. And then he goes to lists off like the apostles and the prophets and the shepherds and the evangelists, the teachers, right? So my point is, regardless of how you understand that to, to be, God's way of operating has always been through a diverse group of people. I want to just talk a little bit about the roles here. So an apostolic role, the apostles. Literally, apostle means sent one, okay? So the apostles in the Bible, their role was to go and take the gospel to places it had not yet ever been for the most part. I mean, they were the predecessors, the founders of the church, the, the starters of the church, right? Prophets. What were the role of the prophets in the Old Testament? They speak to their to warn. They're to say heed, like watch out. <laughs> you know, they're trying, they're constantly saying, hey, watch out for this, watch out for that, right? If you don't do this, this is going to happen. That's kind of the role of the prophet. What is the role of the evangelist? To tell someone who doesn't know the good news the good news, right? To proclaim the good news. Literally, evangelist means good news teller. And you've met people who are good news tellers. And if you put a good news teller next to a prophet, sometimes prophets can seem pretty cynical and dark, and good news tellers can seem optimi optimistic and great. But here's the deal. We need both, okay? We need apostles, and we need prophets, and we need evangelists. What's a shepherd? What's a shepherd doing? A shepherd is caring for the sheep. 
Have you ever been by someone with someone who is so good at caring for the people around them? They're aware of what they're feeling. They're in touch with what's happening in their life. They'll sit by a bedside. They'll serve. They'll care. They'll tend. That can be emotional. That can be physical. I'm constantly in awe of people who are like this because I am so not like this, okay? But this is part of what it is to be different and gifted. So a shepherd is caring. A teacher is discerning, helping you understand right and wrong and what this, what this says and educating you, right? We all need teachers. We've all needed teachers in our life to teach us algebra and math and calculus and, you know, literature and all the things you learned that you didn't know. You needed someone educated and discerning and able to instruct to teach you those things. But if all you ever had was a teacher in your life, but you didn't have a parent, a father or a mother or someone along the way who cared for you, intended to you, you would be kind of hurting as a, as a person, right? And if there was only people who surrounded you who were kind of like always warning you about everything that could go wrong, then you'd grow up thinking that the world was out to get you. You need some good news tellers who are saying, no, 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 it is, it is, it, it, things are bad, but the good news is Jesus, right? So you need that. And if you didn't have apostles, we wouldn't be trying new things and experimenting and breaking new grounds and doing new stuff. See, God made us all so different. And it wasn't an accident. It was, it's not a threat. In fact, it's one of the greatest gifts we have. But it is one of the hardest things, I think, to practice. Certainly in this time. I, I, honestly, I used to be really optimistic. I am more cynical about this than I've ever been in my life because of the culture we're in right now. I literally have zero idea about how to bring together people who should be able to love each other but just cannot get over the fact that they're so different. I mean, if you were to look at you know, the, the family tree of the church. It starts out with the early apostolic church and very quickly, very, very quickly, you get the church starts to divide by location and region. You have the church of Antioch and the church of Alexandria and the church who's rooted in Egypt. And very early on, you get these divides into Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and you get Roman Catholicism and all of that. And then you work down the family tree and then in Roman Catholicism, we split into Protestantism, and within Protestantism, we split into a million different denominations from there. And all of us are part of this crazy family tree that began with the apostles, and yet we're all kind of skeptical of each branch for certain reasons. I don't know how to heal that. Here's the best part of this passage, though. That's actually not the job we're given. See, what Paul's laying out here is what God is doing, what God will do, what he is faithful to accomplish, but not necessarily what you're supposed to do. Like, what he's saying is, look, all of this exists. I put this all in design. I am God over all things. In the end, I want all my people united and mature. And what if maturity was actually being able to value the diversity that exists, right? I mean, that... that as mind-blowing to me there, too. Like, think about, like, I think of maturity 
as knowing stuff about the Bible and being to explain things, but what if maturity wasn't that? What if maturity was actually being able to be with people who are different from me and to value them as brothers and sisters in Jesus? I mean, that, that takes a lot of maturity. I can tell you I don't really care what my kids know right now, but all I want is for them to give human dignity to each other, and that is literally impossible. So I know on a micro scale, it's like, wow, you'd think with like just the seven of us, we could figure that out. We can't, okay? That's the challenge. That's what maturity actually is. And when we get glimpses of maturity in my house, it has nothing to do with school, has nothing to do with biology, has nothing to do with any of that. Well, there's some biology involved, but I just mean, uh, I was thinking AP biology because my daughter's in AP biology. But um, growing up means the ability to like coexist and to live together and to appreciate people who are different, right? Okay, so that's the telos. The way in which we do that. We have to be a part of the community and learn from all these different types of people, right? From apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. We need that. That's, that's, that's what God's, God's method. That's what he's been doing, right? I mean, the whole story of the Bible, that's what he's been doing. But that's not our job. We didn't set that structure up. What is Paul saying their job is? goes all the way back to verse 1. There's a therefore, and he tells them what they're supposed to do. He says, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what is Paul asking them to do? He's not asking them to figure it all out. He's not asking them to come up with a scheme to be unified. God is doing that and has been doing it from the beginning of time until he finishes his work in the end. But what he's urging, what Paul is urging us to do, and the therefore is actually, if you go all the way back up to Ephesians chapter two, it's because of the gospel Okay? Because God gave us Jesus, and because you did nothing to earn that, and because everything that you have has been a gift of God, here's your response to that. Here's what you do. You walk in humility, you walk in gentleness, you walk with patience, and you bear with one another in love. You do those things, and unity may be possible, even in just small tastes, right? I was talking with Pastor Mark about this this morning, and um, he said, uh, he said, it's almost like unity um, is the, uh, it's, uh, it's almost like the way in which we walk is the glue that holds us together that is only made possible by the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was really, really, really profound. Think about, okay, so years ago, we would, when my kids were younger, one of the things we would do to kill time, because that's what you do when you have young kids, is we went to Color Me Mine, and we would make pottery sometimes um, with the kids. Well, one of the kids made this beautifully treasured pottery thing, one of a kind. It's fired, kiln dried, it was in their room, and then the other sibling ended up knocking it off the shelf, 
and fell to the ground and split into, you know, 47 different pieces. And I looked at this and I'm like, well, we're not going back to color the mind. You can't create this thing again. It was 40, I mean, it was probably like $95, this thing that broke, um, this treasure. And so then I'm like, what am I going to do? So I go and I get some Gorilla Glue and I spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in our garage at night trying to glue this thing back together, okay? And miraculously, it worked, okay? I mean, for the most part. If you, we still have the thing, and it just has like, you know, I mean, you can see the seams, but it, it's like back, right? I mean, partially, it's 80%, we'll call it. And, um, but the, when I discovered that Gorilla Glue could do that, then I started using Gorilla Glue on lots of things, okay? Because I realized it was the only thing that could put some things back together. I think what's happening here is that Paul is saying, look, you're splintered and fragmented. You are intended to be a unified body. The Holy Spirit is this gorilla glue, okay? And here's the thing. When we talk about what the Spirit of God is to do in us, what does the Spirit of God do? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Come on, Galatians. Love, joy, what else? Peace, patience, kindness. Wait, what does that look like? What does that look like? He says in verse, verse, uh, four chapter, oh, verse one, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I mean, these are like, it comes from what the fruit of the spirit is. As we get connected to Jesus, as we pray and we're in the scripture and, we're, and the Holy Spirit is at work in us, what is the Holy Spirit going to do? It's not going to teach you all the theology from years past and Reformed theology. What is the Holy Spirit going to do? If the Holy Spirit's at work, it will make you, he will make you patient, kind, loving, slow to anger. And it is only with those things that there's even a hope that we, as diverse people, can be unified. I mean, there's just no way without it. I think, as believers, the propensity, like, we get what God's trying to do. God wants to be known and seen for who he is. He wants everyone to know um, the salvation offered through Jesus. He, we know that the goal is to bring us together. I think we understand the roles that we have, but if we fixate on anything, I think it's like we fixate on the roles that we have, the things we're supposed to do, we think, as a teacher, as an evangelist, as a shepherd. Like, we're focused on what makes us special. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Okay, so I just took this test at Cisco. I can't tell you what the other eight things are. I can tell you what I am, right? I can tell you what I am because what's meaningful to me about it is it tells me why I'm valuable. I can tell you what, you know, um, Myers-Briggs I am. I can explain that one pretty good. I can tell you what Enneagram thing I am because I know my value, but that's not, that's not 
the tool. It's not about uh, just us knowing our value. The whole point is in this scheme of diversity that God has called us to be a part of. You have no choice in it. Maturity isn't knowing your value. Maturity is knowing and appreciating the value that everybody brings. I think in a time and a season like this, that has been more remarkably difficult than I could have ever imagined, right? Like, I was over, I was over all the divisions when it was just primarily political. But now it's about everything. And we as the church have to be different. We have to be. The Holy Spirit can't, like, is not working towards us dividing. It's all, the Spirit's only working to bring us together. And so, what does that mean for us? How do we see? How do, how do we come to see what God's been trying to say all along? I think I want to end with just a story that you probably never heard before. Um, the story of a father who has two sons, and uh, one of the sons asks for his inheritance early, runs away, squanders it on things you shouldn't, comes back to the father, and the father, as a free gift and by grace, welcomes him home, because that's what fathers want, is for their children to be home. But that story isn't a story just about that son who's run away. It's about the other brother, the other brother who doesn't like the fact that the son's home, doesn't understand how the father could be so welcoming, how the main struggles with that son has everything to do with who belongs and who doesn't. But all the while, all the father has been trying to do is to get everyone to be in the home. We need to have the perspective of the father, knowing that we've all been the son that's run away or are the son that's running away, and we've all played the son that stayed. But what God is calling us to is the perspective of the father. And what that requires of both brothers is the same thing over and over again, humility, gentleness, patience. And then they can be a family. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we l look at this and um, are reminded of just a very basic truth to your kingdom and community, that, God, we are stirred to listen to your spirit in all of this. We don't need big strategies of how to bring everybody together. We just need more Holy Spirit. We need more love. We need more care. We need more patience. We weary of differences. We're threatened by differences. We don't understand differences. We can't reconcile some of the differences. Not our job. So we ask and we call and we pray upon your spirit to do something miraculous in us and in those who profess faith in you that, God, you would make us more loving and joyful and patient and kind. It's in your name we pray. Amen.